Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity. My name is Matthew Lee Anderson. I am your host for the show. I'm joined by Derek. Derek, how is life out in Southern California? Are you holding up with the uh, start of the college term? Uh, actually well, like halfway we're, through. We're wrapping up, wrapping uh, up the quarter uh, in a week because UCI is on quarter terms and uh, it's crazy uh, in terms of the schedule, but it's good. You know, we're just suffering with the weather here. I mean, I think it's going to be maybe just a brutal 65 and sunny. <laughs> um, so, yeah. you, know, you know, just prayers, prayers. You, you can we had bring- rain yesterday. You can brag about that, but I'm pretty sure coronavirus is going to get to you before it's going to get to me here in Texas. And so, advantage Texas. Um, so doesn't what doesn't want to waste this time with Texans. Doesn't want to waste this. Uh, we're too strong for the ter- coronavirus. That's what we are. Um, all right, so we're going to talk about serious things today. We're delighted to have a guest on the show, Potter Edmund. Um, Potter Edmund is a member of the Cistercians. Uh, he's a parish priest. In Austria, he is also um, a writer, uh, an editor at the Josias, which is a hub for integralism online. Integralism, well, my first question is going to be, Bader Edmund, what is it? It's great to have you on the show. We're, we're, we're really delighted to have you. This is It's a very interesting phenomenon, um, something that I've sort of, we've both Derek and I have watched as outsiders grow within the Catholic movement. My impression is, correct me if I'm wrong, that this is the hip position to take. Like all the cool Catholic kids <laughs> now are becoming integralists and, the, you know, f- uh, fly in their integralist flags, and uh, this is this is really the where it's at. This is where where <laughs> the action is. Is, is yeah, my impression be. wrong about well, that? <laughs> it's it's uh, it's great to be on your show. Thank you so much. I'm uh, I'm kind of envious of Derek being in Southern California here in Austria. It's a bit colder, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad to hear that integralism is hip. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm the best judge of what's hip, uh, exactly, but, <laughs> but I oh, think it's on. true. I think it's true. So <laughs> the, the um, truth is always hip. yeah. The truth is always hip. <laughs> okay, so lay out for us um, when people are talking about integralism. It's it's an understanding of how the church should relate to the state. Um, what what is it? How should we think about it? Yeah, so basically, it's the traditional Catholic understanding of the way the church uh, relates to the temporal power. The church is, is concerned with the final end of human life, what ultimately fulfills human persons. And everything else um, is ordered to that in some way. The, the temporal power, politics, that's ordered to the happiness of this life here on earth, this temporal life, but the happiness of this life should be ordered to the happiness of eternal life. And that means that there should uh, be a relation between the church uh, and the temporal powers, that is between the authorities in the church and political authorities, um, where there's a certain um, subordination of temporal authority to spiritual authority. So when you when you say that there should be a relation, you have something stronger in mind than just they should get together once a month for coffee. Right. They should be like buds. 
when you talk about subordination, the subordination of the temporal power to the ecclesiastical power, did you say, or was it spiritual power? Spiritual power, yeah. Um, which is manifested as an ecclesiastical power. Right. Um, uh, so when you talk about that subordination, I, I like as you described it, there's there's very little in there that I personally would find controversial. I think I can get on board with a lot of that in terms of uh, uh, the church ordering people to uh, the final end of humanity. I think we, we would all agree with that Um, in terms of all other sort of orders in one sense, having a reference to the final end of humanity um, as well. As a result, that seems not terribly controversial to me. Um, it might be controversial to Derek. Um, uh, but I think there's a question about what this subordination means. Can you unpack, like when you talk about the subordination of the temporal power to the spiritual power, what does, what does that look like? So there's a famous letter of, uh, Pope St. Gelasius the first, who was, um, a Pope He's sort of the the most important Pope between Pope Leo the Great and Pope Gregory the Great. So sort of late antique um, Pope. And he writes a letter to the Byzantine emperor at the time. Um, And he explains that uh, all authority is, is derived from God, obviously, but because of uh, sin, it would be dangerous if uh, the, the the ruler of the of the church, that is the, the Pope who rules the church as the vicar of Christ, if he had immediate and direct power over temporal things, um, because this could lead to abuses where he would be more concerned with temporals than with uh, you know preaching the word and administering the sacraments and so on. So God has has wisely divided authority between uh, a spiritual ruler, the Pope, and a temporal ruler, the emperor. Um, but because the, the spiritual ruler is concerned with a, with a higher end, he can uh, correct the temporal ruler when the ruler when the temporal ruler does something contrary to that end. And this Sanctuasius uh, lays this out very vaguely. It gets developed in the Middle Ages by the medieval popes, who will then say the Pope can intervene in temporal affairs on account of sin, ratione peccati. For example, if uh, we can take um, King John Lackland of England, the Pope uh, at the time, Pope Innocent III, put him under, put the whole country under an interdict to try to uh, force the king to stop. Um, doing things that were, were contrary to the ends of the church. Okay, so so what we've got here, you've got this, you've got this uh, interjection, the spiritual power into the temporal power. Yeah. Um, how how do we get from that to like bishops having armies, like in terms of the in terms of this the 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 doc the development of the spiritual power subordinating the temporal power, not just speaking into 
the temporal realm and just, hey, king, knock it off. We'll excommunicate you uh, because of your grievous sins. Right. Uh, to like actually, hey, I'm wielding temporal power uh, as well as spiritual power at the same time, uh, in, unified in one office. Uh, I, I bring this, I was reading um, The Forge of Christendom, uh, Tom Holland's kind of yeah. generic, uh, you know, intro to how Christendom happened and rose. And so, one, I'm curious, would you see that as uh, a deviation of the classical Roman Catholic position uh, of the relationship between those two? Uh, and two, if it is not a uh, deviation, like how, if it is a deviation, how is it a deviation? And, and if it's not, like how do we get from, all right, uh, Lackland, you're, you're off it, to like, hey, we, we actually have an army mobilized to defend uh, papal states and such. So I'm pitching it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good question. Develop it. <laughs> yeah, good question. Um I think that to some extent, um, it is a deviation from the ideal. That is, the ideal is okay. to have lay rulers who have immediate temporal, charge of immediate temporal rule. And this is manifested in canon law, for example, by the provisions uh, which you have all the way back in medieval canon law, that priests are not allowed directly to engage in warfare, um, although many of them did. It was actually contrary to canon law. They weren't allowed to, and or even to uh, directly in capital punishment. So if an ecclesiastical court condemned someone who had committed a capital crime, they would have to be handed over to secular authorities, that is to temporal authorities, um, for execution. Although, again, this wasn't always uh, wasn't always followed in practice. <laughs> in practice. But... Um, <laughs> When the the papal states are kind of an interesting um, case, because there you have a lot of canonists making the argument that it's necessary for the um, the supreme pontiff in the church to have uh, a limited um, temporal sovereignty in order to preserve his independence from. Uh, temporal rulers, so that he's not uh, immediately under the thumb of whichever temporal ruler um, happens to be ruling in Italy at the time. Um, but I think even that yeah, argument, that's kind of a concession. That's not really, doesn't really follow from the first principles of the, the way Catholic theology sees the relation of, of spiritual and temporal power. Ideally, the, 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 the Pope would just be living in a friendly state uh, where the king is just going to listen and not interfere in inappropriate ways and you wouldn't need a papal state right is that is that what i'm hearing yes okay cool and it is and it is because of sin so this doctrine that is because of sin that the um the church can intervene in this particular way um where th that's specifically like the failure of the state to abide by principles of true justice i mean is it what's 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 the sort of gravity of the sin that we're talking about is there a sort of scale that they talk about or is it like literally just any sin that uh uh the state allows justifies the church's sort of direct intervention in politics 
it, it's hard to to um, find a very clear line uh, that that has to be crossed. But the thinking is that it has to be something that is that's serious, where the temple ruler is commanding, say, for example, an unjust war. Right there, in an unjust war, the temple ruler is commanding his subjects to participate in a grave sin, say, invading another country, killing a lot of people, and so on, unjustly. Um, so he's Very endangering yes. not just his own eternal salvation, but the salvation of his subjects who are also going to be participating in this unjust war. And so in that, and that's the sort of instance where like the church would have to step in and say no. Right. Okay, so what I'm hearing is this subordination at this point sounds primarily like the power, the, you know, at one point it can be primarily the power of the word, um, prophetic proclamation, uh, you know, a declaration by the bishops or the cardinals to, you know, the American justice system or, or, or the government, uh, for X, Y, and Z reasons, here's our brief. This is an unjust war, cease, desist, you know, and, and, and you know, that's not really proper canon language i know but uh a season a spiritual cease and desist order (laughs) on three on 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 threat of spiritual punishment which uh, that's fine that's kind of how prophets work in scripture um what i'm curious about is where uh you're presenting this as the as the classic roman catholic political theology uh which the question one of the questions i have is um, where are all of the conservative Catholics who don't think that is the classic Roman Catholic political theology? Where would they look at what you're saying and say, okay, but Padre Edmonds, he's hiding a couple of premises or <laughs> no, 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 that's not how the Cardinals do things or, or wait, that's fine if all they're doing is spiritual legal briefs, but it gets dicey at this point. And, and, and so I'm curious where, where the controversy, why isn't everybody an, an integralist uh, (laughs) within Roman Catholicism? Right. Okay. Well, maybe they're all anonymous integralists. That was a good joke, Derek. I'd like to congratulate you. You, you finally, there after four years of doing this, you finally made a good joke. <laughs> oh, right. man. Uh, Kyle Rodner was not, an, uh, was not an anonymous integralist. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> may have been an anonymous Christian. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay so that's nicer uh, than i would have expected you to say about carl ronner can i just say that i I expected something a little harsher there uh, okay so um one one more piece here that is probably more uh controversial than what i've been talking about so far which is the intervention in temporal affairs Ratione peccati on a kind of sin. Although that too can be controversial when the popes claim the the right to depose kings, for example. So you're not king anymore. I absolve your right. subjects of yeah. the their duty to obey you and so on, right? Um, yeah. Which which happened as well. And that that's that's one of the controversial things about that. But what's more controversial is the use by the 
spiritual authority, of temporal power as its um, secular arm, the so-called the theory of the brachium seculare, which I was kind of alluding to before with the handing people over to, to uh, secular power yeah. for punishment, right? So this would be, for example, um, in combating heresy, where you, mm-hmm. the, the church uh, claims the authority um, to impose not only spiritual uh, punishments on her members for uh, the sake of their salvation, but also temporal punishment. So you can, um, in the most extreme instance, even capital punishment. You can put a heretic to death uh, for the crime of heresy. And this is uh, where a lot of Catholics uh, say I'm wrong. Um, and they would point to uh, the Second Vatican Council's Declaration on Religious Liberty, Dignitatis Humanae, as, as proving that yeah. I'm wrong. Um, yeah, so I think, I mean, that's that's that to me seems like where the rubber meets the road. So the um, there's when, it, when we talk about a theologically informed politics, yeah, um, there are lots of ways in which I think Protestants and Catholics can get on board with that, right? There are lots of ways in which I think a Protestant, I mean, Calvin has this notion of uh, the church disclosing in its moral life the natural law in its kind of fullness and thus mm-hmm. uh kind of instructing in one way the state on the contents of the natural law and so the state having a kind of the church having a kind of pedagogical or tutorial role um with with respect to the state's account of justice so i think that's there in someone like calvin and there are other figures, more contemporary figures, who are down with this sort of theologically informed politics. Oliver O'Donovan, who's an Anglican, um, yes. who has influenced my view of political theology a great deal. I mean, got got wrote a book, Desire of the Nations, that lots of people read and said thought that it defended Christendom. Um, right. When it was really trying to take the witness of Christendom seriously as one possibility for the church's you know, witness here and now. Um, so all of that seems fine. I think there are questions that we're, we're sort of people have hangups is how this cashes out uh, in uh, democratic societies, right? Um, on the one hand, and whether or not it permits a kind of liberalism a kind of dissent by non-Catholics to the decisions of the state and whether it can sufficiently treat those non-Catholics with respect in their dissents to the state, to the state's decisions. Um, uh, is it, is it the case that, is it possible to have an integralist liberalism where uh, there would be uh, in the state's sort of subordination to the spiritual power of the church, uh, where the church would value the freedom of the commitment of believers to such a degree that this church would require the state to enact something like a liberal society. Well, um, 
I think the answer to that is kind of complex. Um, and it has to do with uh, the wide variety of circumstances in which politics takes place. Politics is, is an exercise of, of practical reason, which um, differs from theoretical reason also in this respect that uh, it depends on the situation which you're actually in. It depends on kind of a quasi-infinity of, of uh Consideration. So you can't give um, a theoretical account of the way this will go um, in its entirety because it's going to depend on where you are, who uh, who is living in this community, what is what their dispositions are, their history is, and so on. Um, so ideally, of course, everyone would be Catholic, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I, I am. I'm, I'm universal. Reform yeah, repent yeah. and submit to the Pope, Derek. Uh, <laughs> it was we, it was going to have to be said uh, once on the shows, right? Like you know, like of course, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the universal injunction yeah. there. Right, right. Um, um, sorry, I interrupted you. But the the so Augustine is is a good uh, guide, I think, here to the way you should think about politics in concrete situations um, in his letters, especially to Roman magistrates in North America, uh, uh, North Africa, excuse me, at his time. That would um, be awesome though. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> if he was right to magistrates in North America. Uh, where you have to, the, the whole practice of politics does have to be formed by um, by charity, and charity expresses itself above all in mer in mercy in uh, in this fallen world. So you want to be merciful to those who uh, are in error, um, and you have to judge what what is going to be the actual effect of what it is that you're doing. But there will be situations where Augustine thinks um, you can uh, use the secular arm to. Uh, to force the baptized to fulfill their baptismal obligation, right? The, the famous case here is the Donatists, whom um, Augustine was originally against using uh, temporal power to coerce the Donatists back to the Catholic faith. But then after he, um, he saw it in practice and saw that uh, the effects of it were actually good, that is that they weren't just hypocritical, fake conversions back to Catholicism on the part of the Donatists, but they actually found their way back to the truth and they were grateful for what had happened. Then he changed his mind and he said, no, it's the baptism gives, gives you um, the gift of supernatural faith, but in the Donatists, that gift is it's being obstructed by uh, their bad habits and by the errors of, of uh, Donatists. Um, and the use of, of discipline, of, of force, um, helps remove those obstructions so that the supernatural gift that they've been given can then uh, flourish. So he says, Foris inveniato necessitas, nascito intus voluntas. So force having been found outside, the will was born within. That is, once 
the imperial troops came and forced the Donatists back into the true fold, then uh, that removed the obstacles, and then their supernatural faith. Uh, Good. So that. in that sort of case, I've, I mean, this is I've got a lot of questions here. Is that a is that a local case or can that be generalized? So let me ask this. The Mortora case, which um, I think was probably yeah. one of the first instances in the States where um, there was not wide, I mean, widespread for like nerdy circles, right? It's not, it's not widespread. It's, it's, <laughs> right, right, it's, right. it's very, very, a very, uh, Dozens yeah. of Twitter Where the accounts Twitter's were went nuts right, over right, right. tens of articles tens about of articles <laughs> and its dangers. You know, the, the maybe first things, dozens. maybe even dozens. Yeah, um, maybe even dozens. The first things piece uh, articulating the um, the reasons why Mortora had to be brought up as a Catholic and uh, was removed from the home. Do you do you want to explain for our listeners who? aren't up on that first things piece. Potter, I mean, why don't you? I mean, it's this. Yeah, I mean, this is a moment. This is it's an important moment for integralism. So, so the 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 presupposition, sort of the premise that you have to know to understand the case, is that um, the Catholic Church claims um, jurisdiction over her members in virtue of baptism. That is, as soon as you're baptized, as soon as you're baptized. You're under the authority of the church. So I'm assuming you, the two of you are baptized. You're uh, <laughs> under the authority of Pope Francis. Yeah. Imperialism <laughs> is great if you're right. <laughs> yeah. Pope Francis I mean, doesn't mind. So, <laughs> yeah. <Right>. Sorry. Keep going. <laughs> so it, it's always been forbidden by the church to force people to accept baptism. Acceptance of baptism has to be a free. Uh, conversion of, of the will, and she doesn't. The church doesn't claim any jurisdiction over the non-baptized. So it was forbidden. Uh, specifically, this was because in Christendom, the main group living in Christendom that was not baptized were the Jews. This was particularly uh, forbidden again and again with respect to the Jews, and again and again because unfortunately, this is one of those things that was not always. Uh, obeyed. Um, and particularly in the papal states at the time of Pope Pius IX, which is where this Mortara case takes place, it was forbidden even for the Jews to um, employ Christian nursery maids uh, out of the fear that these Christian nursery maids would baptize uh, Jewish children against the will of their parents. But because you know Jewish families needed nursery maids and most of the serving class was Christian, obviously, they were in the papal states. Um, they did it anyways. So Edgar Mortara, he was the son of a Jewish family. They had a Christian nursery maid. And he fell sick when he was a baby. And all these uh, canons against baptizing babies against their parents' uh, wishes, there's always an exception if the, the baby's life is in danger. Because right then, you know, you want to snatch them from the jaws of, uh, of uh, eternal, well, not, uh, at least of limbo. You want to give them the, the shot at the beautific vision. So, um, if the just getting into everything today. <laughs> right. If the baby's life is in danger, you can baptize him. So Edgaro 
was sick, his nursery maid baptized him. And some years later, uh, he's a little boy by now, the nursery maid confesses this, um, not in the sacrament of confession, otherwise it wouldn't have gotten known, but she talks about this. She had kept it secret until then. Um, so the, uh, the authorities in the papal states hear about this. They decide to, to follow the canons for this case, which are if, if there is a baptized child who's uh, in the household of unbaptized people, then he has a right to uh, the Christian life. So um, it's just to take him away from his family, give him a Christian upbringing. So that's what uh, Cardinal Antonelli, the Secretary of State at the time, and, and ultimately the Pope himself, Pope Pius IX, um, got involved. They uh, took Edgaro Mortara away from his family. Pius IX, in fact, adopted him and brought him up uh, he, he later became a priest and wrote an autobiography, which was a translation of which was recently published. Um, and that occasioned this first thing's piece where, where Father Romano Cesario, Dominican theologian, defended the action of, of Pope Pius IX. Yeah. And so when it comes to that sort of case... Um, and then boom. Yeah. And, then, and controversy, shall we say, ensued. Um, so... When it comes to that sort of case, it's, it seems to me that there is a continuity. There's continuity between what Augustine does with the Donatus and the Mortora case. And I've not thought about this before, but the point of continuity is that these people are baptized, right? That these right. these are folks who are baptized. And so the use of temporal power to um, steer them in the way that their baptism uh, should incline them but they are being prevented from fulfilling is just and right. None of that gets you to how the state would respond to those who are unbaptized, right? And the um, direction of the unbaptized to their final end by means of the state in order to remove the obstacles of sin in those contexts. Um, And so I, I, I guess I wonder, does the, does the Augustinian, sort of use of the, the, what he does there with the temporal power of the Donatus, does it actually, does it still leave room for something like a liberal state for those who are unbaptized because the state cannot um, coerce uh, towards the final end for those who haven't received the grace of baptism? Yeah, well, here's here's where you get into the theology of nature and grace. So the the integralist position is not only a position about, um, although it's principally about uh, the relation of, of spiritual and temporal power, it's also about what temporal power is, is for in the first place. And here it differs from uh, the liberal understanding of what politics is for, um, because it thinks that politics is about fostering virtue. And we think that there is, uh, that man has um, an end that is attainable by natural means without uh, supernatural assistance. 
and that is the 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 kind of happiness that Aristotle talks about, for example, and other uh, of the better pagan writers. That is uh, a virtue that man can, um, to some extent, attain uh, by his by his natural powers, and um, that's always going to be fragile because of original sin. The wo- nature is wounded by original sin. So there's always, uh, there are always going to be distortions of, of human virtue that's not been healed by grace. Um, but the, the state um, guiding its subjects towards virtue, which is uh, temporal happiness, that is the, what we think is the main goal of the state, that will also dispose them better towards then um, accepting supernatural revelation because vice is always going to be an impediment to to accepting the gospel. Um, Virtue will make it easier to to see the truth of revelations. There's a kind of indirect ordering of um, all of society towards that final end through the proximate end, which is this natural good of the happiness that comes from virtue. So, so at that point, the state or the temporal power should be trying to create conditions such that even the unbaptized look around themselves and think, man, I really ought to get baptized because the Catholic faith is the true faith and so forth. And that would involve all sorts of legislation that would uh, be ordered or informed or even subordinated to Roman Catholic teaching and the, and the spiritual authority. So uh, all sorts of just kind of forms of life uh, that impinge on non-Roman Catholics uh, would be informed by Roman Catholic spiritual authority and power and like say the Pope and the, the College of Cardinals and so forth. And so that's that's what I'm hearing. Is yes, exactly. Okay. So this has broad implications for, like, in a sense, creating a let's say a non-pluralist uh, society in that regard. Um, okay, just for for Matt's question. Yeah. Just, I'm just trying to clarify. Matt, did you want to follow up off of that? Because if not, I want to go back to the Mortara yeah. thing because I don't think we actually play. No, I mean, there, yeah, we've got more to say about Mortara too. I, I mean, I, th- I think that's helpful. So part of, I'll just say my impression, Potter Edmund. It seems like my impression is that the interest yeah. and the excitement about integralism is largely animated by two things, um, in the States at least. Uh, one... Um, seeing the degraded, um, debased, and degenerate form of liberalism that we currently have on offer in the States and looking for some kind of theologically informed politics that would form a real bulwark against a form of liberalism that is fundamentally hostile to the good news of the gospel. That seems to be the, the central... To me, the, the kind of central animating principle that has energized interest in, in um, 
integralism. And insofar as that's the case, like I, I, I just want to be clear, I'm, I'm on board with that, right? Like liberalism of our contemporary sort is to me yeah. not um, a very healthy sort of liberalism. I also think it's also not the only form of liberalism and that, you know, I, I take an O'Donovan in line that there are forms of liberalism that emerge out of Christendom, which uh, when ordered and structured by something like Christendom can be, um, can, can work, which is probably why I asked about whether there could be an integralist uh, liberalism, right? Um, but it seems like the other the other sort of or animating principle within discussions is uh, the background context of American politics and the the victory of Trump uh, and the kind of poss political possibilities that has opened up for conservatives in the states as pushing against a kind of progressive liberalism, um, and I guess I I, I wonder like. Between the sort of theory of these things and the outcome yeah. where we have the properly ordered integralist state in a democracy, what what happens in between to get us from the theory to that properly ordered integralist state? Is it an imposition of power right. over all Americans? Is that what it bottoms out in? Or is there anything like deliberative persuasion um patience long suffering or 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 does it really cash out in a kind of like well we're right we've got all the power now and so we're just going to impose this on everyone else well i think that um it's going to be I mean, I don't think this is actually going to happen. <laughs> if it did happen, <laughs> it would be a mixture of both. I mean, if you look at Trump converts, what what happens? The armies, the armies roll out, <laughs> and he, and they they take the sign of the cross on on their on yeah. Their it it, it, it turns happens. out that rather than going door for door looking for immigrants, the American army goes door to door forcing people to get baptized. Right. This is this is the ultimate. <laughs> right. No, no forced baptism. Okay. 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 <laughs> Forcing to behave those who themselves. are already baptized to, yeah. you know, repent and submit to the Pope. Right. Okay. Uh, no. So I mean, I mean, you're, you're referring obviously to Constantine there with the crosses on on the uniforms. Yeah. And what happens with with Constantine is you have um, you have the the long years of persecution before Constantine. Right where you have the witness of the martyrs um, and the witness of, of the Christian life, which um, by the time of Constantine has become a major factor in the Roman Empire. It's, right. Empire. it's not clear exactly what the percentage is. It's, it's not a majority. It's still a minority, but it's a growing minority. And it's one that more and more people are finding persuasive. And that's the context in which Constantine converts. And then you have... Um, the developments after Constantine, it's not till Theodosius the Great that uh, Christianity actually becomes the official religion yeah. of, of the Roman Empire. Yeah. Um, and again, Constantine helps the growth of Christianity because uh, you know he's and the persecutions so on. So you have a, a, you have both things going on at once. Right. You have this 
um, persuasion through the witness of the Christian life and of martyrdom and so on. Uh, and then the, the post-Constantinian growth, you also have the encouragement that Constantine gives to the church by giving privileges and so on. And that leads then to the, to the point where Theodosius can say, all right, um, justice requires that you know, we give God his due, and that means uh, recognizing the truth of the Christian religion um, and imposing sanctions on uh, the worshipers of devils and so on. Yeah. So Theodosius is is, uh, is the goal. Is the real, is the goal. <laughs> well, so so with that, I mean, this is where things get interesting in in several. Oh, finally, ways. we're finally uh, getting interesting, Derek. You know, I've been I've been finding it interesting the whole time. Well, <laughs> I've been enraptured with what Potter Edmund's saying. Don't get me wrong here, um, but but uh, the the issue of of how that is how that is exercised in in in, a, in an order like let, let alone how we're supposed to get there in, like at least in the American system you know whatever how many light years away that would right. be mm-hmm. um, you know there's the issue of the the pluralism among the baptized so several like you know what does it look like for right. for Matt and I to be um, brought into submission so that like you know the will is born. In, in, within us and uh, enabled and free and that sort right, of thing. Right. So that's so so what happens to all that? And then there's the there's actually just the well then I want to get back to Mortara. We can't leave that alone cuz we kind of you know for, so let's 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 talk about that first and then we'll get back to Mortara because I want to talk about the ordering of the natural and the supernatural at that and caught up in that case and I want to hear from you. So like but practically what does that end up looking like? Um, uh, because once the baptize, once the baptism has happened, we're compelled and so on and so forth. Um, what place is there for, uh, you know, the freedom of yeah, well, the will at that point? Well, there, let's put it this way. There's, there's a lot of place for understanding that, uh, of the force of habit, you know, I mean, I'm assuming you, you didn't convert to Protestantism from Catholicism. You probably grew up as Protestant. I did. Um, there you go. So you've got generations maybe of, of this, um, habit as it were. Um, well, we, so yeah, we're, we're Roman Catholic background though. Um, um, we're Hispanic. Oh, you so are? yeah, we were, we were recently lost. Oh no. <laughs> All right. Well, in your case, <laughs> then uh, you can expect the papal gendarmes at your door anytime. I know. But, um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. There's again a lot goes. There's there's a lot of room for understanding of uh, the difficulties that are caused by circumstance and habit and so on. But at the same time, there. Um, I have a great confidence in uh, in the power of the truth and the power of uh, in the baptized of the their supernatural faith, which is an infused virtue which enables them to assent to the truth, and that um, the the use of of um, persuasion of all kinds. And even the use of uh, of temporal power 
um, can be effective because of the power of the truth. Uh, when when you do uh, help people to overcome bad habit, to when you do remove impediments and so on, I have a great confidence in their ability to recognize the truth and accept it joyfully. So, so like when you shutter all the like Presbyterian churches and the only churches on the street are Roman Catholic ones and you're like, well, I got to get to church. My bad habit of going to a Presbyterian church is removed and I can now enter into the fullness and, and by persuasion, pull a Pascal, you know, say you don't believe, sit, take the supper, you know, uh, and let, let it work on your soul. But like that, that the bad, like the removal of bad habit is kind of what, so that means all the Presbyterian churches, all the Lutheran churches, all the big, Zing. ugly, non-anon-box churches, and which maybe that's an aesthetic uh, habit that, that should be excised. But like, the, you know, all of those things are all the bad habits impeding us. Is that, I mean, what, would you say that that would be part of the habit cleansing, you know, exercise of the temporal authority on behalf of the church or? I'm, this is what that, that it could be. I mean, again, these are these are matters of practical reasoning, which are going to get complicated. If you look at the Counter Reformation in Austria, um, to take a concrete example of, of this being done, the, the you get very different results in different regions of Austria. Large, well, I mean, large parts of the the majority of the populace of Austria became Protestant during the Reformation, mm -hmm. um, with the exception of, of some of Tyrol and some provinces. But, for example, Lower Austria, where I live, um, the population here was majority Protestant. Mm -hmm. Same with Styria, the next province to the south, that was also majority Protestant. And um, the Counter-Reformation was very effective, but it was somewhat une uneven. There were areas where it was done, the Counter-Reformation was done very well, and th those tended to be the areas where the Jesuits were involved where they did a lot of education. They did, I mean, they closed down the Protestant churches, obviously, and, you know, uh, expelled the Protestant ministers and everything. But they, they really put the main emphasis on education and really um, leading minds to the truth. Um, and those parts of Austria, you can see even today a difference between those parts of Austria where the Jesuits were and the parts um, where there was a much less prudent uh, um, counter-reformation where they just, uh, you know, came in with the iron fist and there was uh, much less emphasis on education. They just said, all right, you're going to church every Sunday now, and if yeah. not, you know, you get punished. There was, there was no and velvet even today, you can see on that the, iron fist. It was just right. iron. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, and where it was just iron, you have even today there's less practice of the faith hmm. than in the in the areas they were counter-reformed by the Jesuits. Which is an interesting argument. This is an argument that gets brought up all the time, or at least maybe not all the time in general circles, but the irony of, uh, you know, the American, the irony of the American founding and its kind of general religiosity uh, yeah. is precisely in that because religion was not established and enforced uh it ironically enough has w much greater vitality yes 
you know, some weird stuff going on too, but like us versus, you know, Roman Catholic England. France or England, uh, where it's, you know, the, 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 the compelling, the force itself, uh, you know, when you looked at these scorched earth, former, uh, lands and, and Christendom, it's like the, the use of force itself, uh, by the temporal power to enforce the spiritual power, uh, nullified the efficacy, uh, and diluted the efficacy of the spiritual powers appeal to the truth. I mean, that's, that's one argument that can be made. Um, and, and I, you know, yes, I mean, that is, I think, and that would seem consistent with, I the, think it's not completely false there. I mean, they're, they're I, th I don't think it's completely false, but I think it's mostly false. So, um, I, <laughs> uh, I think there can be a counterproductive use of force, force as, as that example, the counter reformation shows reformation shows, but you see, um, I think the problem of, of secularization, say, in France, um, has to do with uh, not, on, not only with the, the union of throne and altar, but with a, a host of other um, related issues as well. It has a lot to do with, um, I mean, the problem of secularization, secularization in general has a lot to do with the ideology of progress. And in France, there's this kind of envy of, of England and Holland, um, which gives you this intellectual class that's very anti-clerical. Um, and that has to do with this kind of seduction of the of this modern movement of progress. And it's true that in, in the United States, you don't have that because you don't have the same kind of opposition or apparent opposition between the church and modern civilization. Um, that you have in France. But you have other examples, say, in, in Poland, where you don't see the same kind of anti-clerical uh, phenomenon that you, ha you have in France. <laughs> so, Potter Edmund, I, I, I find all that really interesting, and we're actually running short on time, which is unfortunate, because this has been a lot of fun. I've, I've really enjoyed talking. We can't let you go. We can't let you off the hook here. Yeah. We've we've got to go back to Mortara. We got to press you a little bit more. So I know Derek has questions on this, but here's here's my question. Okay. Um, my question is okay. about right. this exception like clause within canon law. Um, Thomas doesn't allow for an exception in right. the Summa when he takes up the question of baptizing the infants of non-believers, read Jewish uh, folks. He doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. um, canon law does permit this exception. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that a lot, theologically, doctrinally, hangs on this exception, uh, that we would um, overturn the natural order, or we would, we would um, coercively baptize an infant against the will of the parents, thereby, it seems to me, violating the natural order even though the child is close to death like it seems like a lot really hangs on that for our understanding of the relationship between nature and grace why did it why did why does thomas not include an exception and why does canon law not follow thomas in that 
Like it's, it's 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 a question I've had for a long time since because I my well. dissertation is on parental and procreative um, proc- procreative reasons yeah. particularly, but I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about parental rights and um, you know this this gap between Thomas and and canon law intrigues me a lot. I'm not exactly sure why there, why there's that difference between Thomas and canon law, but I think that the the canonical exception is. Uh, is reasonable um, because the the whole natural order um, is for the sake of the supernatural order. This is, I think, if, I think one big difference between Catholic theology and, say, Calvin's theology is that Calvin uh, Calvin sees the original creation order as as permanent and as and uh, redemption is basically being reparative. It's restoring the original order of creation. Whereas um, Catholic theology sees the original natural order as good, but not as the final um, permanent order, but as kind of a um, a sign of what is to come. So, for example, this manifests itself in differences between Calvin's theology of marriage and, and the Catholic theology of marriage, where um, so Calvin doesn't really have any understanding for uh, celibacy as a sign of uh, the supernatural good that is to come. For for Catholic theology, marriage is good, um, but it's a, a provisional good. That is, it's a sign of the, the the supernatural marriage between Christ and his bride, the church, that is, uh, that is going to be the final good. And so the whole natural order is like that. It's a sign. It's a, uh, it's a participation in that of which it is a sign. You can think of this kind of in Platonic terms. The, the heavenly city that is to come is like the, the Platonic world of the forms, and the natural order is... Um, you know, is, is a participation in those forms. But finally, it's going to be superseded by something better. And so um, if you have a child who, so the, the family is another case of this. The family is a sign and the authority of parents over, over their children and so on. This is a sign of, uh, of God's fatherly love for, for um, the blessed and all these things. And it's good and it is to be respected as far as it goes. But if a baby is, is in danger of death, then um, he's, as it were, uh, at the threshold to being able to enter the reality uh, that his family is a sign of. And at that moment, you can uh, um, do what would normally be forbidden by the laws of the family. That is, you can remove him from the authority of his parents um, to, to give him... Uh, to enable him to to attain the reality that his his family was assigned. Okay, so so that's interesting. And the, and the whole the whole theology of natural and supernatural. I read one of your essays earlier, and the the ordered hierarchies, all that. That's that's very um, that's all very appealing. Uh, but that said, it, it seems like that's the 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 Calvin's view, as you put it. 
uh, versus uh, the integralist view doesn't seem like the only way to order creation and grace in such a way that still makes space mm -hmm. for creation as a sign of something to come. So Bobink, Herman Bobink, you know, Dutch reformed uh, yeah. organic mm -hmm. uh, Kuyperian, et cetera. Well, he's not a, Kuyper was his homie. They were both neocals. Uh, there, there's there's a place in there for movement within reformed eschatology that sees redemption um, pushing us towards that further eschaton. There's the now and not yet. There's there's more to come. Seeing and seeing creation is just a sign, right. but redemption and grace doesn't violate nature in the process of getting to. Uh, nature's end and he has a whole different theology of relating right. nature and grace in the first place but it's that issue of violating you know in order to attain the supernatural end you have to violate nature like th there's 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 you know him being at the threshold right there's epistemological questions and wh when do you make these kinds of judgments uh like wh where do you where do you in your natural in your fairly natural sight start to discern between the blurriness of you know the heavens to come peeking in into this child's life uh and whether or not that you know you, you whether or not this this person has the authority even to violate the natural bonds of the family this 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 woman uh i mean she's not she's not a she's not a uh I mean, she's not the pope right she's she's not right. even an agent of the state um she is mm -hmm. she's stepping into one of the orders that god has created and violating it uh and it just seems like a very ends justify the means approach to um arriving at you know uh, uh spiritual value that's that's a terrible way of putting it but it just seems like that the violation itself is intrinsically disordered as an action and is that matt you may want to correct where i'm where i'm going there with this but it just seems it's a it's an intrinsically disordered act how can it get to uh uh uh, uh a good end in that sense yeah well i mean that the question is whether it is an intrinsically disordered act so our lord says in in luke 14 if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Um, and there, um, uh, the way the Catholic tradition would read that is that grace doesn't violate nature in the sense of being contrary to, to natural good. It fulfills and perfects nature. Nevertheless, um, there can be a temptation to rank the natural good above the supernatural good. And that's when, when, there's that, when that temptation is there, then uh, that's when you need to, uh, you know, be hard. As, as our Lord says, hate your father and your mother. Hmm. And so this woman is hating the child's father and mother on behalf of the child uh, in that sense. Indeed. Interesting. Matt, I, Matt's given me. I, I would love to keep going here, but I think we're, I think we're at the wrap up zone. Matt, Matt, are you yeah, are you an right. integralist I mean, yet? Did, did the, 
<laughs> Did it happen? Hey. So, you, <laughs> so you, you guys went straight to the hardest part of Vintagulism, which I mean is fair enough. But <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, we had to. Be the advertisement because you, you immediately went to Martara and all the hard cases. I but, mean, what do you expect? <laughs> of course, of course. The, the easy cases are no fun. Uh, and I do. Fair enough. Know, yeah, no, I, enough. I don't know that I, I, I did tweet something like, you know, there's this um, woke, broke, woke, bespoke sort of thing on Twitter that uh, yeah, happens. Yeah, yeah. And so I tweeted something like broke, liberalism, woke, post-liberalism, bespoke, theologically infused liberalism. Right. Oh, Which is the, okay. the kind of, you know, so I think I think the central question and that I, I will have and take away what prevents me from getting fully on board is with the integralist moment, if you will, is the possibility that um, the common good, the uh, sort of arrangement of the community around both their final end and the limited temporal ends, that one thing that is constitutive of the, of the common good is the freedom of citizens to dissent. And that's actually a part of the common good that's necessary. And that something like a common good liberalism can be had, um, which is not our current liberalism, right? It's, it's, it's as much of a constructive project as an integralist project would be, but it's, it's one that is, would be trying to take uh, deliberation and persuasion um, seriously as, as necessary constituents of, the uh both the ultimate ends and the penultimate ends of of the human community yeah. well maybe i'll invite you guys onto the josiah's podcast yeah we can talk about <laughs> for we a follow-up episode we can we talk, can talk about, about we can talk about theologically liberalism we can talk about sphere sovereignty because that was sovereignty we can talk about kuiper yeah word and sword you know why aren't they not the same we can thing? do all the things let's do uh, it okay all right part that two. sounds great part two uh well yeah, yeah. So, uh, Potter, I mean, we really thank you for coming on. This has really been a ton of fun. We, we really yes. do appreciate it. Uh, it's been really helpful, me. really, really valuable, I think, for me to think through some of the dimensions of integralism. Uh, for those of you who are listening at home, we hope this has been a helpful conversation as well. If you're not familiar with integralism, that's fine. Uh, you know, you've, you've now gotten an hour long crash course in uh, one way in which certain Catholics, contemporary Catholics are thinking about the relationship between church and the state. And one of the things that we hope to do here on Mere Fidelity is introduce you, our audience, to a wide breadth of views, not all of which we agree with, um, some of which we disagree with, um, but all of which we try to take seriously because we're interested in the shape of the faith in our world and want to hear from lots of voices on what shape that should take. So thanks for your patience. This has been a longer episode than normal, but we're grateful for your time and for your attention. Um, if you want to join our, our merry band of financial supporters, the link to do that is in the show notes at Mere Orthodoxy. Uh, we'll have more shows uh, coming up this spring. Stay tuned. I think we're going to have Molly Worthen on, a historian of American evangelicalism. So. Uh, that should be coming in the next couple of weeks, and we've got good things lined up after that. We may, it's possible, we may even get Andrew Wilson on the show. <laughs> We're hopeful. We're hopeful. Oh, so uh, in the meantime, until next time, uh, we're grateful for your time. This has been Mere Fidelity. Mere Fidelity.